everyone. Welcome to The Outpost, Liberal Arts in the Last Frontier, a podcast exploring classical education in philosophy and praxis. I'm Kayleen Morris, and this is the final episode of season one, and a bit belated, you might notice. We actually recorded this episode right before going to Christmas break, and it has taken me until now to get it all put together. But I sat down with two of my colleagues, one from the upper school and one from the lower school, just had a conversation about the day-to-day life in our classrooms. So we're excited to give you that little inside scoop. It's a nice conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. Stay tuned for season two, where we'll be exploring the thesis work of our juniors and seniors. We expect that to start coming out in the next month or so. In the meantime, we invite you to become a patron of our school at patreon.com slash theoutpostak. And thank you so much for your support of our school and this podcast. I'm here with two of my illustrious colleagues to further put a human face on Holy Rosary and just kind of do a little get to know you episode. And we'll just have a little chat about what brought us to Holy Rosary and, um, why we love what we do, and what it is exactly that we do. Um, so let's just hear who you are. Tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, what led you to HRA, and what you teach here. Uh, my name is Eleanor Lodsdale, and I am the third grade teacher here at Holy Rosary. Uh, this is my fourth year uh, teaching here. I kind of grew up very heavily steeped in classical Catholic uh, education. I bounced around a lot from Catholic school to Catholic school because if it was Catholic enough, it didn't have a good enough education program, and if it had a good education, it was Catholic pretty much in name only. And because of my experience, my mother actually started a classical Catholic school my freshman year of high school. I'm I'm the only one of my siblings that didn't attend this school, and so she has a K through eight school. And just last year, she started high school. It's in its second year and doing great, and that's back in Connecticut. So when I was in high school and all the way through college, every summer, I organized the entire curriculum books because the resource room where all the teachers pulled the books for was my parents' basement. And so I would be down there with my iPod and some music, and I inevitably read all of the curriculum books as I was supposed to be putting them away, which my mother was never pleased about, but at least it got organized. And then I went on to a classical-based uh, college. I went to Thomas Aquinas College, and then I really fell more in love with the liberal arts and, and how you, uh, you're being given a handbook to the development of the Western mind when you study the classics and the, and the just blanket liberal arts. And so I did that, and then I decided I wanted nothing to do with education, and I was not going to do this. And I thought I was going to uh, uh, go into, into a medical field and God told me absolutely not. I ended up, I knew if I was teaching, I was going to teach at a, a classical school and I want to teach third or fourth grade. And I, uh, wait, okay, pause, go yeah. back. Because, um, like how, in what way did God tell you absolutely not to nursing? Was that like you failed all your classes? Or oh, like no. You hated- so getting a degree that's basically philosophy and theology, you have to then took a bunch of prerequisite science classes. So I did all that and I had good letters of recommendation and my GRE scores were good. And I kept not getting into like all of like the safety kind of nursing program I was applying to. And I was like, okay. Mm. And it was just about Lent. And I know you're not really supposed to give God ultimatums, but I decided to anyway. And so I said, all right, God, by the end of Lent, I want to either be, have gotten to nursing school or been offered a job teaching third or fourth grade at a classical Catholic school with a really good curriculum. Uh, and I was like, bonus if it's in a good location that's not California. Um, and so uh, I got hired the day before Palm Sunday on the Feast of St. Joseph. 
And I was like, well, this is a very clear sign that this is what God wants me to do. And so I moved to Alaska the first time I had ever been to Alaska when I drove over the border with everything that I owned. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Wait, and then you said that you really wanted to teach third or fourth. Is that just because you had been going through, like, those were the books that you loved going through the curriculum in your parents' basement? Um, or No, it's where children are developmentally at about third or fourth grade. And particularly a little bit more at third grade is now they, they know how to read the mechanics of reading. And that's a, it's wonderful to open that door. But now you get to read your first chapter books. And you they, uh, they've also reached a point in their mind where they can begin to have almost syllogistical thought. Their starting point is always very interesting because they're eight, but you can reason through them and you, you can actually get, like I have seminars with my students about every other week and they do very, very well. Um, and they're also like young enough. It's still cool for the teacher to like them, but old enough to also have like good conversations. And you can see this development of like logical thought that it's a big jump from second to third grade that you don't see that before that. Okay, I don't know. I think <clears throat> I kind of interrupted you in your story because I was interested in those other things, but... I grew... I, I, I knew a lot about the classical curriculum, and I saw firsthand how much... How, how greatly superior it was to the education that I had. And I went to some of the really, really good private schools in New England, but I was being told what to th- what to think. And my siblings in going to their classical school, and then later when I went to Thomas Aquinas College, I was being taught that they were being taught how to think, not what to. And I realized how important it is that you don't, you know, a teacher is not a USB, like a USB stick that you're like inputting this information to the child and it should come back the same way, which is how a lot of modern education is, is done. You are being given the tools that there aren't there are way less obstacles um, because you can now overcome things because you've been taught how to think rather than what to think. Okay, over to you, our second <laughs> guest. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Laura Walters, and this is my sixth year teaching at Holy Rosary. Um, my 11th year teaching overall, though, um, because I taught for five years at the University of St. Andrews. Um, my path to Anchorage is kind of a roundabout one. I was born in Anchorage, so I'm from here. Um, grew up in Soldatna. Didn't have a classical or Catholic education because Soldatna is small. And so there was a public school and I went there. Um, it was very good though. And I think that really fostered a lot of, um, interest in me from a young age. Junior high and high school, similarly, um, didn't really have a, a classical sort of, um, approach to things. I went to University of Alaska Fairbanks for my undergraduate, majored in biology with minor in French, fully intending to go to med school. This was like my path and had been since high school. I love science and anybody who knows me now knows that I love science still. We'll get back to that. But then I had to take some general education requirements at UAF. One of them was art history and I fell in love with Uh-oh. art history. Uh-oh. <laughs> exactly. Actually game just begun, I think, because I added like a second minor basically in art history. They let me do graduate level classes as well, even after I'd graduated, because I graduated early, a semester early, and then worked at the museum up there, which was awesome in museum education. And again, I hadn't really thought that I'd want to teach. I'm naturally pretty shy. So I was like, ooh, teaching, no, just leave me with my books and my manuscripts and I'll be quite happy with that and like studying dusty old paintings. This sounds great. I then went to Scotland. I decided to pack up and leave the country um, because there was a particular professor I wanted to work with at the University of St. Andrews. 
which is Scotland's oldest university, now ranked number one in the UK, which is very exciting. And I did my master's there and then stayed on for a PhD, um, which was wonderful. I got to go all over Europe, to the Vatican, to the Louvre, libraries and museums um, with amazing collections to, to do that research. And I came back to Alaska because um, a family member got um, ill quite quickly, so I kind of had to pack up like within a week and get back. And it was the middle of spring. It was actually Holy Week. It was the Wednesday of Holy Week in 2013. Didn't know what I was going to do for a job. Had no idea whatsoever. Worked at Barnes & Noble for a while and then met Catherine Neumeyer. Um, and she told me, oh, we'd love you to apply at Holy Rosary. Like, it sounds like you'd really fit in. And I did. And... I was interviewed by Mr. Welsh and Mrs. Skirda and Miss Newmeyer, and the rest is history, and I've been teaching here ever since. I teach in the upper school. I'm also the head of the science department. So I teach, just like all the upper school teachers, um, across the curriculum. So this year it's calculus, Latin 1B, church history, biology, anatomy and physiology, beginning fine arts, advanced fine arts, and next semester adding bell choir to the mix. So keeping me busy and out of trouble, definitely. What I love is that you're, I mean, <laughs> I always describe you as a Renaissance woman because you do literally everything. And I just love hearing your background. It's like so foreshadowed in the undergrad, like biology and French, which is such a weird, unexpected combination and mm -hmm. foreshadowing there. Yeah. I always tell people I have too many interests for my own good. I love languages. I love science. I love art. I love music. And it's such a gift to be able to teach that and share that with the students here in a classical setting, which I think is just a really exciting way to teach and a really natural way to teach as well, because we kind of follow how the mind wants to acquire information as opposed to like forcing it down somebody's throat. That's probably one of my favorite aspects of teaching at a classical school is that nothing we're we're doing is fighting the natural inclination of how man learns. And, um, I think that's probably where my classroom teaching elementary is so different from a public school mm -hmm. is that I look at how children desire learning as an end in itself. Mm -hmm. I don't really do reward systems and gimmicks and little mm -hmm. grab bag prizes and things yeah. like that, like at all. And I, I actually, actually greatly dislike them because mm -hmm. then it, it's, uh, you're learning to, for check marks or mm -hmm. for something else and learning in itself is an end. And you see that naturally in, in infants, right? You don't have to tell an infant that it's interesting to look at something and try to figure it out. They just, mm -hmm. they just do. When they hit certain stages of development, you'll see a baby put a hand in front of their face mm -hmm. and they will open and close it repeatedly because they're trying to understand how the muscles work and they're trying to figure it out. That's why babies love mirrors mm -hmm. and things like that. But it continues in through the elementary and a classical, classical school and all the way through the high school. Yeah, exactly. Is that the learning in itself is the end. And the children want it. They don't need some kind of mm -hmm. reward. And I'm very quick to, if they are looking at something and they are wondering, um, I think my students think that they, they run my classroom more than they do because <laughs> they, I only let certain certain tangents. But if they're really excited about something, mm -hmm. I would never stop a child at work. Like if mm -hmm. they, I have had two or three hour long religion and math classes because mm -hmm. the kids just wanted to continue it so much because they didn't need a reward. This was fun mm -hmm. and interesting, the learning itself. And we're going to, I mean, if an eight-year-old is asking to do more math, you, you mm -hmm. don't say no to that. You just continue. But you're, yeah, they, the learning is the end, and they mm -hmm. gravitate toward it as man. Mm -hmm. Gravitates toward truth and knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I see that in the high school, exactly the same thing. Um, it's been so rewarding this week, because it's been finals week here at HRA. Everybody seems a little stressed, a little frazzled and on edge, students especially. But 
to see the students really pick up on something and run with it. So like in church history, we've been talking about um, Nestorianism and the Council of Ephesus, and they've read some translations of documents from Ephesus. To see them in a class time when they can just work quietly, talking and puzzling it out and piecing it out, literally one of them with a catechism in front of them, and then to see them in the halls afterwards and at lunch going through this and talking about it and wanting to know more. Not because, oh, it'll help me on the essay on the test, but because they want to understand it. Like, they're so interested and they find this so fascinating as to, like, how did somebody think these particular things? How did somebody fall into that? Well, how does how is that different from what we actually believe? Things like that. And similarly, in labs this week, it's been so fun to see children... Um, picket muscles and pull at tendons and flex um, chicken wing tips to see how the muscles work and to see their um, understanding of, oh my gosh, this is actually just like how my arm works. Like here's an extensor, here's a flexor, here's a joint capsule. Oh, that's the end of the humerus. It looks almost the same as a human. Like it's been really exciting um, to let them kind of run with that. That's cool. Yeah. And I love one of the things that I love about our school being so Mm -hmm. small is that these big questions, they'll grip like one or two students and then Mm -hmm. it just spreads like wildfire Mm -hmm. throughout the whole upper school. So you'll have, yeah, sophomores in church Mm -hmm. history asking these big questions, but then the eighth and ninth graders are like, wait, what are you guys talking about? And then they want to pipe in with their answer too. Mm -hmm. And it's been so, I mean, when you see that that student you're talking about with the, Mm -hmm. with carrying the catechism around, I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, something's cooking. Like, because it's been 10 days or whatever in any free Mm -hmm. moment, he's pouring through the catechism and Mm -hmm. it's really, really cool to see to see that the way that stuff mm-hmm. can really grip them. Mm-hmm. Dr. Walters, maybe you can mm-hmm. say more about what you mean. Cause you said that classical education is teaching students the way that they want to learn or mm-hmm. the way that their mind is programmed to learn. Like mm-hmm. what, can you talk more about that? What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. So classical education is really based on the, the classical sort of stages of grammar, logic, and rhetoric having a biology background, especially in neurobiology myself, the brain wants to learn that way. It will naturally pick up on fundamental concepts first, and then it will put put them together in a sequence that makes sense, and then it will try to explain it or explain it to others. So this is a really natural way to acquire anything, be it math or language or science concepts, um, be it theology concepts, grammar and vocab and like composition and how to construct a sentence and write convincingly or speak convincingly. Like this is a really, yeah, I can't think of a better word than natural way to, to learn. And it's better for students as well to, to learn in this way rather than just have fact, 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 memorize these facts and give them back to me because you let them think, you let them go through those stages of understanding and sort of getting to what the truth of something is instead of just telling them this is the truth. Don't ask me why. Yeah. That's a good point. Actually, now that I think back to some of my experiences in other schools Mm -hmm. and now that we're in final season, Mm -hmm. it's like thinking about the finals that I used to write. Mm -hmm. I would write some more complex questions, but at least half of the test would be like multiple choice. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's so funny because writing finals now is so much easier when you're like, you have an essay, synthesize everything, (laughs) you know, and they, um, and it's great too, because you can give them, I don't know how you do your classes Mm -hmm. or I guess third grade probably doesn't really have finals. Maybe you do. I don't know. You can tell us about that, but I pretty much in many of my classes, (coughs) give my students the final ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Like this is the essay that you're going to write. I do too. 
And then just preparing to write mm-hmm. that essay is their review and their synthesis. Mm-hmm. And I think it takes a lot of pressure off and it makes a final mm-hmm. exam way more worthwhile mm-hmm. and meaningful, like a, a meaningful learning experience. I do that, at least for some of my classes. So for Latin, for example, they get the story they've got to translate ahead of time. Um, and we go through it in class and that really brings everything together as far as the grammar and the vocab, the way the language is used to sort of tell us about the people who are writing that language, which is really interesting. Um, Church history as well, they get their essay ahead of time so they can really synthesize it and go through it. And that's where a lot of these fun discussions that I've sort of seen pop up have come from. And in reading their essays, as I've been grading their finals today, they've been excellent, which is really, really fun to see the the sorts of things that they're able to to do. And then for anatomy, they get clinical scenarios. So this is like Mm. ultimate synthesis where they've got to take what they know about the grammar of the human body and how it's put together, the logic of how the systems all work. And then they have to figure out maybe what's wrong with the person or what these symptoms could be. And it's so fun to see their analysis of that and where they kind of go with it. Because, you know, somebody comes in with a cough, you can go in literally a thousand directions with that. Um, And it's just really exciting to see them think for themselves um, and, and make those connections. What do you guys do end of the semester in third grade? Do you do anything like cumulative or is it just sort of, I guess. Uh, Toward the end of the year, like in May, we'll do more of a cumulative kind of assessment. It it varies in how it looks. Just Um, to like make sure that they're ready to go on to the next grade level kind of thing? Yes. Mostly see that they're ready to go on the next grade level, but also it's a good tool for me in helping move forward to how I want to, if I want to do something the same way or if I want to do it differently. But also a lot of what we're doing in, in, in elementary school is you're creating habits. And so... If you get used to the concept starting around 8 that you take big test in May, even if it's not going to be the, the make or break your grade, you're starting to learn this concept. And so that then when it is really hard, this isn't a new thing. You're not scared by the idea that you're having this big thing now. So much just like, okay, now I just synthesize this information. And a lot of what I, and it, it's not just in this aspect, in all aspects of really what I'm doing is laying, laying the groundwork for moving on. That's why it's the grammar stage of it all. Their homework is, I try to give um, 10 to 15 minutes per grade. So my students are in third grade, so I assign 30 to 45 minutes of homework. And it's usually, now we're, we're building this habit. And next year it'll be another 10 to 15 minutes longer. And the next year, there's obviously the kids that are going to whip through it in class and go home with their homework. But um, it's the it's the habit and the practice that they're just they're getting used to. So tell us a little bit about the curriculum in third grade, because us <coughs> upper school folk mm-hmm. have no clue. I mean, I'm sure you do a lot of wonderful, great things, but like, what is it that they're actually studying and discussing? What are the big themes of third grade at Holy Rosary? So we, so I teach everything across the board, obviously, except for like art, PE, and music. So in math, it's more of your typical um, third grade math like we just started our times tables this week and so we know our zero ones twos fives and tens and we'll move on after christmas and that's very it's not very classical in nature because you kind of just have to certain things you kind of have to do by rote mm-hmm. and i as a, i teach seventh grade math and man when you have kids coming in seventh grade math who don't know their times tables it's like oh this is brutal and that was kind of me too i was always rough mm-hmm. on some of them and when you get into the more advanced stuff and you're like six times seven six times seven, what is the heck is six times seven again you're like oh i wish i'd memorized these better mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that is so important and so we're, we're doing that and um, i take a lot of time to show how math applies to real life for them and when we're not doing the timetables, most of my math classes are done on the floor, which probably sounds really, really funny, but I've arranged my classroom so that I have a huge amount of floor space. <clears throat> if we can 
if you can touch it and move it, it makes math better. And so I have a lot of, I call them materials, but this is the Montessori in my heart. Manipulatives, it and it cheapens what you're doing. These are materials that are helping us learn. They're not toys. You can't play with them. You're only for this project. But um, it's tactile kinesthetic learning. That's what I was trying mm-hmm. to remember, and I can only think of kinesthetic. That sounds fancy. But mm-hmm. I think but you're touching and you're moving is really what it means. And it, children are not meant to sit still. And so we do very little of you just have to sit at your desk. If you want to do your math homework sprawled on your stomach, that's fine with me. As long as like it's written neatly and it's done correctly. If you concentrate better standing and leaning on your desk, that's also okay with me. And I know a lot of teachers do things differently, um, but I think that everybody learns. Um, if you learns differently, and if I can't sit in a desk all day, I can't ask my my students to do it. And I don't really even have a desk in my classroom. I gave it up for a reading corner. But so in math, we if we can touch it and move it. That's even better. We have. Spelling is just kind of typical spelling. Our font, our spelling curriculum is phonics-based. Uh, in history, we uh, start with um, the very first civilization. We start with the nomads, and we go through the fall of ancient Rome. And so the students are starting to see patterns. And they're probably about spring break, you really start to see that they've, they've got it. Because I mean, the whole history of ancient civilizations is somebody gets too big for his britches, so somebody kills him, and then mm-hmm. they get charged too. They, then another person comes up. The students start going, dun, 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 he's going to die. Because they start <laughs> to see these patterns again and again. And without fail, some little boy pulls that line out every single year. But they're starting to see, oh, well, this is the pattern of what goes on through history. Do I, does it, you don't necessarily need to memorize, like, Rome fell in this year, or this person did this. I want them to see how civilization grew and became more advanced, and then the patterns that are still repeating themselves today, where somebody tries to make too much control and the government falls apart and you have other people pick up the pieces. That's so great because you're like <clears throat> learning about human nature through yes. history, which is probably much more important than chronology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And it's, yes, it's much more about like, yes, human nature, and so they add in all the little folk tales and um, when you learn about the different civilizations. The students are very much in love with, in love with Anansi the spider right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, our science program is, is more biology life science. We focus on focus on animals and plants and I don't need them to memorize these facts about different animals. What the, the goal of the third grade science curriculum is, is that Everything in nature is properly ordered, and there's a purpose to it. And we spend time, like, um, my students really love plants. This is probably because I really love plants, and I filled my classroom with them. But I point out things like, well, if you look at the shape of a leaf, what is that leaf telling you about the way the roots look at the plant? And so I want them to start seeing that there is a reason. Well, oh, if the, the leaf is kind of like V in the middle, it's because it's got a main taproot, and it's filtering the water down toward the center. If it branches out, it's because the roots are spread out. And I want them to start seeing that in, in nature, everything, there's nothing arbitrary. I think your res- your mm-hmm. students are responsible for rating my carrots in my garden okay. <laughs> at the beginning of the school year. All right. They must be. Like, this is tall. It must be long at the bottom. I, like, I came out after 
so I was like looking through the garden and you could tell like so and these carrots were like I planted them way too late like I was just like ah let's see what happens and they were never <laughs> gonna mature but it was like you could tell somebody had pulled it out and then was like oh and like tried to stuff it back in <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that was one That's of my fun. students they they love observing nature we have an ivy plant in the classroom and every other day they want to count how many new leaves have grown on this this plant and they want to learn if you can grow new ones so we're propagating ivy plants mm-hmm. in my classroom but because they've been so interested i'm i let we we learn more and more things about it um, they want to talk about it all the time so i got them a little like succulent subscription box that comes to our classroom we get two new succulents every month kind of thing and we learn about well it, they need this temperature and they they're learning about just general everything is for a purpose mm-hmm. um we do literature or reading language arts is a big it's a lot of stuff and it's all very new in third grade because now you know how to read and you know how to write letters like physically form the letters and put words down you know generally what a sentence is so we start from we write paragraphs i teach them how to write. we just learned how to write a paragraph last week that's like prop like a like a you prove your points and what you think, what you think. A lot of writing, a lot of summarizing and building up my ability to analyze things. And we, we spent today talking about the difference between what happens in the story is not necessarily what the book is about. And so we just finished Charlotte's Web. I said, okay, what what's this book about? I'm like, well, it's about a pig and a spider. And I was like, well, actually, no. And I said, that's what happens in the story. What is the book about? And then they realized, like, one kid was like, oh, it's about friendship. It's about all the different kinds of friendship and who's good and who's bad and who's not really a friend at all. And that was our discussion today. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful. And so, and, and they, they can do it. Today, we didn't do a seminar this time, but we will in the future do more seminars on these, these things. So it's the... Um, you know, nouns and classifying sentences that can label the subject noun, the verb, the adjective, the adverb, all of that. And we start Latin. Just like vocab and stuff, or do you do some grammar and things too, or? Uh, it's a mix of both. We're not going to go through declensions <laughs> and say, hey, what's list me the first declension endings and now list me four examples or something like that. It's, um, we have a really wonderful program that I love. Um, it's called Minimus, and it's a tiny little mouse that lives in a real castle that existed in Roman-ruled England right near the wall, Hadrian's Wall. And so you actually learn the stories of this family that lived in ancient Rome when it was, or England, ruled by ancient Rome. And it tells the story through comic strips that they have to translate. And a lot of it is them seeing that oh, this word is a lot like the English word. And so a lot of the words, they don't actually tell them what they mean. It uses the pictures and develops the analytical thought of the child for them to kind of figure out, oh, insans means small child. It's kind of like an infant. Oh, I'm starting to see these connections. So a little bit, it's for the vocab. It's more that I want them to see how it affects their language. And that translating isn't just changing one word to the next mm-hmm. one. You have to rearrange the words. And so I, yeah. my students are responsible for that from the beginning when they translate sentences. That is so important. I mm-hmm. was reading some, some Greek translations for my <laughs> final today, and I was like, well, you have kind of gotten all of the words. 
the way they've been put together makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> Same with some Latin as well. And it's so important that they sort of recognize, just as you were saying, um, how it relates to English. Yeah. Like, that's such a fun connection to make, um, even in the upper school for Latin 1B, which is what I teach. Um, and Minimus is such a, a great introduction as well to Latin. It's so fun. And then we use the Cambridge Latin books in the upper school, and they're published by the same um, people as Minimus. And it follows the story of Caecilius, who's a real man in Pompeii before the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Mm-hmm. And by the end of book one, you get to know what happens to him and his family. So I, I always like, tell them no spoilers. <laughs> I like that it grounds them in mm-hmm. that this was a real language that yep. was used. Mm-hmm. I know no one uses it anymore, but look, like in our Minimus, there's a mm-hmm. there's one chapter where there's a birthday letter Mm -hmm. that they actually have a picture of the original thing written Mm -hmm. and the students translate the birthday Mm -hmm. letter that one person wrote another person Mm -hmm. this is a real thing well, we're getting close to time here, but I thought maybe as a last thing we could talk about what we're excited, something we're excited for for next semester. We have started to learn how to do a seminar because mm-hmm. really it's about grammar, the grammar of every subject in elementary school, but I want them to start to see what they're working toward. We sit the students down in the library and we have uh, tea and like biscuits of some kind and... Um, I explained to them that it is okay if you disagree with other people. You can even disagree with me, but you can't call anybody a name, and you have to have a reason why you disagree. One of the books that we read in the second semester is we read like a retelling of the Jungle Book. Because Rudyard Kipling's a little bit much for third graders, unless you're reading them like the Just So Stories. Yeah. But the point is for them to start to see that this is a commentary of how you fit in society, and every year without fail I have one student will advocate for the most perfect form of democracy explaining why this would have been the best situation for Mowgli and another one advocates for anarchy because you should just trust people and they sit very calmly with their tea and they debate this back and forth and she's like well I disagree with you because I just think that you should just trust that people are smart enough to not hurt other people and someone's like but also people are not smart enough to not hurt other people and that's why we need to have more laws and you have eight year olds discussing in a a logical, calm manner, and they're all holding their little cups of tea in their hands, how to properly run a society. It is okay if they don't get the right answer, and everybody, that's what adults fight over all the time, is what is the right answer to that, but mm-hmm. it's that you can have these conversations, you can have them in a, a logical, calm, calm, respectful manner, and you can bounce ideas off of each other. And the students, this this is when I start to see they, they start talking about it at lunch, and mm-hmm. they they ask to have seminars all all the time, and I love when you just they kind of they hit this point where you can really have a good conversation because they've seen how the society has gone wrong in history, they've seen all the times in religion class where somebody's pride has gotten in the way and it's hurt so many other people, and the importance of needing other people, and then we read about Mowgli and we discuss this we discuss government. It's one of my favorite things to teach. That sounds amazing. Also, we need tea in upper school seminars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mr. Klotz used to do tea. He used to have a Russian tea when they read Crime and Punishment. Oh, my god. Every gosh. other Friday, he would bring in, like, Russian teas and cakes and everything. It was so nice. Well, and what I love mm-hmm. about that is that it's really, you can see exactly how that relates to the kinds of conversations that mm-hmm. you have in real life with people, mm-hmm. where, because there's something about having something to eat or drink while you're discussing or having a conversation that feels in a way it formalizes the discussion mm-hmm. more but at the same time it it I don't want to say it makes it less academic but it makes it you know how when you're really mad like at a, when you're a kid and you're like you're just at odds with your parents or whatever and you it's like time to sit down at the dinner table and you're just not hungry because you're like at odds with the people 
So you don't eating is like communion. So you just don't want to eat with people that you're at odds with. So that's what I think that's what it is. Like with the tea is like you're communing because you're you're eating and or drinking together. And so it's like um, there's something about it that facilitates like cordiality and mm-hmm. um, like a kind of charity. Because uh, it is hard sometimes not to let things devolve into a debate. <laughs> It, mm-hmm. I think it also encourages if I, I phrase this to my students like, well, what what do grown ups do? They they sit and they have a drink of some kind and they mm-hmm. eat and they talk about things, mm-hmm. and usually not everybody agrees with each other. And it, you're you're creating this setting for them that they that I want them to go out. Like mm-hmm. I, I think we want the upper school students mm-hmm. to sit in kalates and discuss these things. And mm-hmm. this is how you in in outside of school, but yeah. in their regular lives with everybody else, you want the these ideas discussed and when you sit kind of model it for them we're going to have tea and talk about it well I want them to do that with their friends when they're older and have these in-depth discussions because mm-hmm. more people need to talk about these things and why people think what they think mm-hmm. yeah we should do that for the upper uh, the all school seminar oh, that'd and be upper fun. school that'd be a yeah. fun little thing to add so what are you looking forward to there's so Next many things semester. in the second semester <laughs> um, you can only pick two. Oh no really <laughs> only two Okay, that's hard. Um, One thing I always really love, the students are always terrified of it, especially if it's the first time they've done it, Latin declamations. Oh, yes. Um, Because it is so beautiful to see them interacting with um, original, like, primary source Latin poetry and prose, and getting a feel for it, like, getting the rhythm down and getting the inflection down and understanding, for example, um, one of the choices that my class has is... um, Dido's Curse from the Aeneid by Virgil, and sort of seeing them wrestle with what um, Dido is actually feeling as she's cursing Aeneas to enmity, like, for all generation, is an amazing sort of revelation to them. Or, like, a Catullus love poem or something, or Horace is owed to the the fountain near where he grew up, that sort of thing. Those are lovely, too, but um, that's always really fun to see them... um, really come to to grips with that and look at Latin in a new way from, like, in a really um, traditional, like, okay, this is, like, true classical Latin. Um, So that's really fun, although they're all terrified of it. But they always do so well, so they needn't be terrified. Gosh, other things I love, church history. Um, I love the second semester because we get into the high medieval period and then the Renaissance. Again, I have... Specialty. (laughs) Yeah, master's and a PhD in art history, so I would be really, really remiss if I did not somehow work this into my classes. And it is so fun to bring in music and art and architecture and literature and drama to sort of show them how man is thinking and not just like okay these are historical facts but look at all of this beauty that comes from human like innovation that comes from man praising god and then how that shifts to man praising man in the renaissance which is so neat and they usually all make that connection and they're like huh this doesn't really it's not about god anymore curious um so that's super fascinating to watch i can't show you anymore can i you can have one more. Okay. Um, biology, they do a really, really fun experiment every spring where they get to transform bacteria. So all of these things that we read about and that they've learned about, they now actually get to put into practice in probably the most complex lab we do in the entire uh, the entirety of Holy Rosary, um, where they will take genes from another organism and force them into bacteria to make bacteria that will glow in the dark. 
Ooh. Which is so fun. And again, the wonder that comes from that about the natural world is something that I cannot replicate in any other way. And I love seeing that. I'm glad you said that word, wonder. Mm-hmm. I, it occurred to me that we haven't said that yet. I know. And it's really important that it's we do. It's crucial. I think that's probably the most important mm-hmm. aspect of classical education is that yep. you want a child to wonder mm-hmm. and you want to encourage that and you want to instill that wonder in everything around exactly. them. And I think that is, is it's wonder that you then add order to mm-hmm. is the summary of what classical education looks like. And it, it's across the board, kindergarten mm-hmm. through 12th grade yeah. into classical run colleges and mm-hmm. universities. It, it's wonder kind of set on fire. Yeah, that's a nice phrase. Mm-hmm. Wonder set on fire. Well, let's see. I'm excited for, I love my Greek class because I'm, I've been designing the curriculum myself and my students <laughs> have been very patient with me because like every activity that I give them, no matter how many times I've proofread it or whatever, they always seem to find some error, which is oh, actually yeah. kind of cool. I haven't yet reached the point of pretending that I've put them there on purpose for them to find. <laughs> the curriculum that I used to teach from was really like, I got a little frustrated with it because we started getting like way into the weeds and it just started getting not fun anymore. So, so I designed this whole new thing with the goal of being able to have some facility with the new Testament. So we have been plowing through this semester and I'm so proud of them because they've learned two declensions. Mm -hmm. They've learned, um, four verb tenses and all we need is like participles and one more declension, and then they'll have like every little piece, every building block that they need, and then they just have to like go ham on the vocab, and then um, and because they only need to know like three, if you know three hundred words, you know eighty percent of the words in the New Testament, which is super exciting. So um, and they they already have been translating little passages here and there, so that's that's really exciting. But I'm just really looking forward to like that moment when we like come out of the tunnel and are like, okay, we we have all of the grammatical concepts like at least introduced that we need, and that will just feel really good. I think so. I'm excited for that. So I guess we'll just call that a wrap. Thank you so much for coming to chat with us. You're welcome. Thanks Thanks for having me. Thank you. And this was super fun, and I feel inspired and rejuvenated after a long day at finals. So, yeah, thanks, and maybe we'll see you on another episode of The Outpost.